Rising generations of young people are inheriting the U.S.-China relationship we build today, which is currently facing a low point since normalization 40 years ago. Is there hope for a more constructive and mutually beneficial relationship? From climate change action to technological advancements, what role do today's youth play in defining how China and the United States interact? As we try to tackle these questions on 21st century engagement, it is helpful to turn to a historical perspective to better understand the forces and trends that have shaped the current bilateral relationship. My name is Leslie Tisdale Reagan, and welcome to the Bush China Foundation podcast. Joining me today to explore these questions is Mr. Fei Guo, a historian who focuses on modern China and East Asia. Mr. Guo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Fei Guo is a history PhD student and Brumley Next Generation Graduate Fellow at the University of Texas at Austin's Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law. His work focuses on state building in 1950s China and its impact on China's economic development in the post-1978 period. Fei is also a fellow at the Bush China Foundation. Fei, as a historian, could you give us a brief overview of the focus of your scholarship and what led you to study this topic? So my research initially focused on the 1950s China, particularly the various state-initiated campaigns to rebuild order and reform society. So the previous narrative framework is quite nomadic, informed by Cold War narrative and various uh, post-modern, post-Asian. So I want to take a look from the perspective of state building and shedding lights on state capacity and long-term development. So I was originally interested in cultural history, obviously influenced by the cultural turn since the 80s, but I gradually pivoted to something else I found very interesting. Given the historical bilateral relationship and today's current tensions, why should the U.S.-China relationship matter to young people? Well, I think at least to the Chinese youth, it's pretty obvious. There are over uh, 300,000 Chinese students studying in the U.S. now, and there are more coming every year. I think at least for Chinese youth, they are very concerned about the U.S.-China relationship. And also as to most important countries in the world, U.S.-China relationship have really great impact on the world. And also for, I think, uh, most Americans I have met, they are less uh, ideological than a lot of times than the media, and also they are very pragmatic. Uh, they are very curious about China. They want to learn Chinese. They want to explore the economic opportunities in China. I think it definitely matters to the youth very much. In the popular understanding of normalization of relations between the U.S. and China, Deng Xiaoping has often been seen as a bold reformer who was willing to depart with some of the absolutism of Mao Zedong in favor of a more pragmatic approach, like you just spoke about. Under President Xi Jinping's rule, many China observers have seen a departure from the openness and reform of Deng. Do you agree with that assessment? And more broadly, how do you view Xi's chairmanship in the larger context of Chinese leaders since 1949? I think this is a really interesting question. I mean, the new leadership has been uh, hotly debated. Well, kind of, the media paid a lot of attention to that. I think we probably should just go back a little bit to re- reconsider the uh, dominant narrative. People often consider them as too 
generations of leaders with opposing policies. But we need to bear in mind that actually Deng was uh, used to be a Lao uh, deputy of Mao, and they are the uh, earliest revolutionaries in China. A lot of their policies actually in the early times are the same. And also reform and opening up actually depends on the U.S.-China rapprochement. But that uh, normalization of relationships actually started in Mao, under Mao's watch in the early 70s. So I think in terms of this question, we should really reflect upon the uh, the narrative we already have and, and think whether uh, reform and opening up is really a, a huge break, a huge discontinuity in Chinese history. I want to pull on the thread of decoupling. One of the major drivers of competition between the United States and China today is for technological supremacy. This has in turn led the U.S. efforts to decouple with China in the technology sector, for example, by attempting to block Huawei and other companies from the government supply chain. So as we look to the future, will this sort of non-cooperation in technology taint other areas of the U.S.-China relationship, in your opinion? Well, I think definitely, especially a lot of uh, Chinese companies relies on uh, U.S. technologies, U.S. patents. And also, I think in the U.S. containment blocking of uh, Chinese use of technologies, I think the rhetoric is have a quite negative impact on how China perceived U.S. intentions. I think definitely in this process has tainted other aspects of cooperation for future U.S.-China relations. So surveys have indicated that young people are less zero-sum oriented in international relations and more open to collaboration, especially on things like technology and innovation, because they're more exposed to other cultures from traveling and social media. Do you think this is true in the U.S.-China context? Yeah, I think it's true. I think many Chinese students come into the United States to study and learn American culture, learn a life of style. I think they are less influenced by China's domestic propaganda. And also, on the other hand, I met a lot of young Americans, uh, my classmates and others, that they are very interested in what's going on in China, and they want to explore the economic opportunities offered by China's rise. A lot of them want to learn Chinese. I think youth is really a crucial group to focus uh, when it comes to U.S.-China relationships. On that note, what can the two governments do to facilitate exchanges for millennials and Gen Zers, or Zoomers as some have called them, in both countries? Well, government can do a lot, but I think the society can do a lot more. I mean, the last year we saw President Trump uh, revising a lot of policies regarding Chinese students coming to the U.S. Some Chinese signed facing pressures from the U.S. government to withdraw cooperation with uh, Chinese partner institutions and, and so forth. So I think both countries probably need to more open-minded when it comes to uh, people exchange. I think that's what the government can do. But for the society, I think more can be done. I mean, with the new technology, especially the new social media, average people can be a reporter, can report what's going on uh, in their life. 
I myself have subscribed to several quite interesting YouTubers. Some of them are Chinese, some of them Americans, reporting what they think about China and U.S. I think this sort of、uh, people-to-people exchange and also this new media can do much more to foster better people-to-people relationship. I want to shift gears here a bit. We have seen through recent U.S. elections the destructive power of distorted digital information flows, as a result of media bias and, especially in the case of China, direct censorship of information. Our general populations are often working with different sets of facts about one another. How do you see the role of digital information flows in the future of U.S.-China relationship, and is broad digital censorship even sustainable in China? China has this、uh, what we call great internet firewall about internet censorship, and the U.S. also has, well, not the same problem, but kind of similar issues、uh, with regard to censorship. We apparently, I think, live in a new era in terms of communication technology. I think it poses new set of issues for governance and citizenship, and the role of digital communication cannot be underestimated. I think in the U.S., despite the、uh, ideological, I think supremacy of freedom of speech, I think still、uh, there are censorships, but not in the same way as in China. It's not exercised by the government, but more by corporations and by peer pressures. I mean, Facebook, Google probably have much more power than we thought, and particularly in the age of artificial intelligence, in intelligence engineering and changing public opinion may not be that hard. AI is all about algorithm adapting and learning, and if an algorithm keeps feeding customized information to individuals, it might not be too hard to change a person's opinion. I mean, as we can、uh, see from the Brexit and also the U.S. election, and also another aspect of censorship is、uh, cancel culture in the U.S. Also, foster censorship, although in a form of I think group censorship and self censorship. Well, China censorship is state-installed internet censorship. I think although it's、um, a little big deal in the media, but I think it really does not impact ordinary Chinese people that much as we thought. Thinking our daily life I and mean, how many foreign websites or services do we really need to access to? So I think for a lot of ordinary people, it's not a big deal, but.、Uh, I mean, I'm not saying it's、uh, it's good. Or it's、uh, it's it's great.、Uh, it obviously has a lot of problems. For instance, for、um, China, a lot of Chinese scientists complain about、uh, Google Scholar being blocked. But I think in the long term, I don't see any force within China that will put strong resistance for dismantling the censorship. Although what should be censored are always contested in China. I think also the other the other aspect of uh, uh, disinformation. Is that the media often calls out the responsibility of government or, or corporations in combating fake news? But I think it's also important for average people to be humble and open-minded and cultivate、uh, the ability to scientifically evaluate evidence and argument and to be a, a responsible citizen. I couldn't agree more. I think disassociation from factual reality is a big problem in both the United States and China, and often that can be fueled by false narratives in the media cycle or on social media. 
moving on, uh, Faye, as a historian, you have joined other esteemed figures in advocating for historians' input in the process of policymaking. Notwithstanding unresolved differences between the U.S. and China on key issues such as human rights, what advice would you give policymakers in the United States about how to approach China, perhaps economically or politically? There can be many advices, but I think probably, first of all, U.S. elites and intellectual and politicians should probably should reflect upon what's America's uh, core interest when it comes to dealing with China. Is it trade or is it to keep jobs in America or is it other aspects? I think the changing of U.S.-China relationship, I think from the China's perspective, the long-term goal is, is generally very clear, but in the American side, it's not that clear. The long-term goal for China is to be a rich country, to be at least uh, uh, in, on par with the other major developed West nations. So this concept goes back a long time ago, uh, I think also shared by other kind of East Asian countries. But when it comes to the United States, it's kind of unclear what America really wants. Does America really want to contain China or does America want to benefit? So I think the first advice would be to reflect, reflect upon uh, what's the core interest of America whether it's a, a human rights issue or whether it's market access or whether it's other issues. So that's number one. I think number two is probably, I mean, history matters, probably uh, elites, U.S. elites, and also China, Chinese elites too should uh, pay attention to each other's history. I mean, what kind of uh, narrative, what kind of uh, collective memory shaped how each country react to international crisis or international challenges. Even though people say China is very old, but actually I think China is very young, especially compared to the United States. The current China, People's Republic of China, is only 17 years old, and, and a lot of its collective memory was uh, shaped over the last 100 years. So a lot of China's thinking style, Chinese policymaking, is wrought in that process, is wrought in that uh, collective memory. So I think uh, if American politicians and elites, they want to better approach China, they probably should think, first understand Chinese history and uh, recent modern Chinese history, and also think what's the mentality of Chinese decision-making. And this is also true for the, for the Chinese elites as well. We are currently at a low watermark in post-1978 U.S. public opinion of China and vice versa. There is clearly mutual deep distrust in this relationship. What are some measures countries could take to begin rebuilding trust? Are there historical examples of trust building we could replicate? Even the U.S.-China relationship, I mean, started with the ping pong diplomacy. I mean, just a quite interesting way of beginning of uh, relationship normalization. Currently, we can replicate that. Uh, But I think the... The core issues are really whether the two countries or two uh, governments want to rebuild their trust uh, in the long term. I think that's the key issue. And also some other measures. I mean, think about all the Chinese students coming to the United States every year. All these people-to-people exchange offers plenty of opportunities. 
to build trust among the two peoples. So I think the opportunity and the measures are plenty of. But the key question is whether the two governments are willing to foster trust. On to our final question. Your doctoral research, in part, focuses on China's economic development after normalization with the United States. Part of the reason the United States normalized relations and later voted to admit China to the WTO was based on promises of intertwined economies and mutual economic benefit. Do you think the traditional global economy has benefited from the U.S.-China relationship? And just more generally, how has the world been affected by the normalization of relations? I think the traditional global economy has benefited a lot from U.S.-China、uh, relationship. I mean, U.S.-China relationship is unique in its own ways, but it's not unique in many aspects. China basically followed the same path. Well, China's economic development kind of followed the same path with、uh, Japan and Korea and Taiwan. In the 1950s, United States kind of incorporated Japan into the U.S.-dominated world economy. Then Japan's economy soared, and also Korea and Taiwan. China was the latecomer in the eighties, and U.S. China accepted admitted China into this U.S. dominated world economy, and while giving access,、uh, giving market access to、uh, U.S. while China benefited from U.S. capital and technological importation, and this process has created a huge economic boom in both China and. United, but the problem is that the benefits of this、uh, relationship was reaped mostly by the corporations, while the blue-collar workers kind of lost jobs to Chinese manufacturers. I think this relationship has to be improving by equally sharing the benefits among American people. I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Thank you, Fei. Fei, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your perspectives. Thank you so much for having me. Remember to look for the Bush China Foundation podcast on our website, SoundCloud, and Spotify, where you can follow our conversations. Thank you for listening. <laughs>